Hello, and welcome to When It Goes Wrong, the podcast about disasters, accidents, and times when everything falls apart. I'm Jasmine, your host, and on this episode, we'll be discussing the 1996 Everest disaster, where eight climbers perished whilst descending from the summit and being caught in a blizzard. This is part two of this story, so please go back and listen to part one, or a lot of this is not going to make much sense. Uh, There's a lot of people involved, and I covered a lot of the context around the climb, who everyone was, what everyone was doing in part one, so definitely make sure you've listened to that and then come back to this one. So before I do the recap and go into the descent, uh, I just wanted to spend a tiny bit of time just talking about a bit of the illnesses and kind of afflictions that the climbers will get from being at altitude. And I thought this would be helpful now because it will give a bit of more context before we go into the details of the descent. So like I mentioned in the last episode, there is a quite a lot of impact just from being at altitude. So it's usually called altitude sickness or acute mountain sickness. And it's basically the result of, of low oxygen. And I like to think I'm kind of relatively sciencey, but I tried to read about exactly why it's a problem, but it was very complicated. Uh, a lot to do with like pressures and relative concentrations of different gases and things like that. So all I know it's just not good when you're up high. (laughs) It just doesn't really work for the body. And what we need, as we talked about in the last one, is to kind of slowly acclimatize to this altitude. And this allows your body to produce more red blood cells. Uh, And then that means that the oxygen that you can absorb is, is better utilized. So that's why it needs to be so slow to get up there. Symptoms from um, altitude sickness generally include things like headaches, nausea, confusion, especially confusion around what's going on, decision making uh, and fatigue. And there's often uh, like quite a lot in the books that I read where they basically say, you know, at the top of the mountain, basically you take one step forward and then you have to stop for like at least three breaths just to like try and catch your breath back because you're just so fatigued by the lack of oxygen up there. And often this happens if you if you ascend too quickly. So if, if you haven't done the right acclimatizing, then it means that you are more likely to be impacted by it. And what can happen is altitude sickness can then become a lot more serious if it if it proceeds to something called hape and haste, which are basically it's basically swelling of either the brain or the lungs and often this is really really dangerous if it gets to this point and it can be very fatal and often that's because of blood clots so if you've got kind of swelling and fluid uh, it's much more likely to lead to blood clots um and yeah and and very bad things happening so as soon as someone has any symptoms of hape and haste it's really important that they get down to lower altitudes and get treatment but like I mentioned, it can be quite hard to know with the symptoms when someone is progressing from just kind of normal altitude sickness into potentially something that is life-threatening. And there was another good quote, really into quotes on these two episodes, and um, there was another good quote in one of the, in the John Krakauer book that I read, uh, which he, when he talks about his experience at base camp and on Everest and altitude... And he says, despite the many trappings of civilization at base camp, there was no forgetting that we were more than three miles above sea level. Walking to the mess tent at mealtime left me wheezing to catch my breath. If I sat up too quickly, my head reeled and vertigo set in. I developed a dry, hacking cough that would steadily worsen over the next six weeks. 
Cuts and scrapes refused to heal. I was really hungry, a sign that my oxygen-deprived stomach had shut down and my body had begun to consume itself for sustenance. My arms and legs gradually began to wither to toothpicks, and by expedition's end, I would weigh 25 pounds less than when I left Seattle. And that, and that is just like the impacts of, of base camp and being, you know, like low in terms of where the mountain is. So you can really, you know, I think that brings to life really the impact uh, of which the altitude is, is having on the climbers. Along with altitude, there's obviously the problem of the fact that it's really cold, <laughs> especially at higher levels. Uh, and frostbite is very much something that uh, impacts the climbers. And frostbite is literally where bits of your body freeze. So they literally become frozen. Uh, and it usually Im- impacts areas with small blood vessels, like fingers, toes, noses, that kind of thing. And basically little ice crystals form uh, and this can also lead to, to blood clots and other issues in those areas. And the treatment generally is to like literally defrost the area. It's a kind of gentle rewarming to try and bring back, to dissolve the, the ice and then, and then bring back the blood to the area. And it's quite hard to treat frostbite because you don't really know the extent of actual damage because sometimes it can look very bad, but the the limbs or the fingers will uh, recover and will be okay. Uh, But sometimes that's not the case. And if you do get very severe frostbite, it does lead to amputation. So a a lot of mountaineers lose fingers, toes, that kind of thing. But generally, they do have to wait a while before determining what what kind of treatment to do. Alongside uh, frostbite, we've got hypothermia as well. So when your core body temperature drops, uh, and that often happens when you when the climbers are not climbing. So when they're stopped, when they're waiting, when yeah, when they're not kind of generating heat through through the exertion, exertion uh, that's when they become very uh, potentially uh, vulnerable to hypothermia. And then finally, the last one was snow blindness. And what snow blindness is, is basically it's where your like cornea and the bits of your eye basically get sunburned. And it can happen if not wearing goggles and because as people will know, they go when they go skiing and they get really sunburned, the kind of the ice and all the white snow basically like reflects back and, and leads to burning. And so uh, that's obviously very dangerous if they get that up quite high on the mountain because it basically kind of incapacitates you in terms of like how you are going to navigate and get down. Uh, so it's something that they're, you know, people are very aware of and try very hard to make sure it doesn't happen. Thankfully, you do tend to, to, to heal from it relatively quickly, but it does mean that, you you know, you need to sit in like a dark place basically for like two days for your, for your eyes to, to heal and feel better. So as you can tell, there's a lot of danger, a lot of kind of issues and stuff that you're going to get being at these high altitudes and all of this combined with just the sheer physical exertion, the uh, kind of dangerous weather, the dangerous fact that like you could just fall off, like all of that kind of stuff. It just means that we're talking about a very dangerous pursuit of, of trying to get to the summit. Okay, so let's get back into the main story. And I'll just give a quick recap from the last episode just to remind you. So what we discussed last time, it's 1996, and we're following two groups as they attempt to summit Mount Everest. So we've got adventure adventure consultants who are led by Rob Hall, and then Mountain Madness, which is the new expedition on their first year, led by Scott Fisher. 
And in the last episode, we talked a lot of, all about the summiting, so all about getting up to the top of Everest. And the clients all made their acclimatization trips. And then by early May, they started their summit bid. But unfortunately, the trip was already plagued by errors. So there were fixed ropes which hadn't been laid at parts of the mountain, which meant that they had a lot of delays. This also led to quite a few bottlenecks uh, for the climbers. And as I mentioned, the slower the climbers climbed, the colder they got and the less oxygen they would have in order to sustain their entire journey up and down. And this meant with all these delays that instead of turning around at the agreed time of around 1 to 2 p.m., many climbers, including the leaders, summited much later, even around 4 p.m. and after that. The last of the summiters were Doug Hansen and Rob Hall. And as I mentioned, Doug had climbed with Hall the year before, but had not made it to the summit. And Hall had spent many months trying to convince Doug to come back and give it another go and join the trip in 1996. And so when Hall saw Hansen on his way down, he decided to turn around and help him back up to the summit. Which I think, you know, we're going to talk about reasons for, for the kind of incident at the end, but I think the fact that Hall had kind of really promised to get Hansen to the to the top meant potentially some of the decisions he made weren't weren't the right ones so Fisher at this point has also been lagging he was also very late up the mountain he had been showing signs of fatigue and stress in the days previously and he generally wasn't climbing at the speed or skill he normally would uh he was clearly suffering and when you hear, when you read about Scott in in some of the books, he you know he rarely ever complains. He's always kind of up being positive, but he was starting to say you know he he wasn't feeling good and he wasn't wasn't in a good way on this trip. So he also summited late, and then he met up with one of his Sherpas as he started descending. Let's take it forward now and get into the descent. The group continued down, but it was pretty slow, especially because as the first people to go down, they were com- still kind of hitting the people that were coming up. So this meant there was another big delay at the Hillary step whilst people were, were waiting to descend, whilst people were ascending. One of the guides, Anatoly, uh, from Mountain Madness, descended very quickly and he descended before the clients. And this has been a point of like serious debate across both of the books, which I'll, I'll talk about later. But there's been a lot of criticism about this decision to descend and not staying with the clients. But he he had chosen to climb without oxygen and people say, oh, because of that, it meant that he was getting really cold. It meant that he couldn't stay up high and he had to go down. But Anatoly has always said that there was a plan for him to descend quickly uh, so that then he could be prepared with with bringing things back up. So things like hot tea uh, and potentially bringing up oxygen or or anything else to, to anyone that needed it. So yeah, bit of a bit of a complicated one, but we'll talk about it later. So Anatoly got got down and he went down to camp four um, and then others also successfully made it down before the blizzard which was brewing hit. Uh, So that included Krakauer, the journalist and, and a few of the other much stronger climbers. So at this point, we've got five groups in play 
when the blizzard hit on the descent. So we've got Rob Hall and Doug Hansen, who were the ones that summited last, as I mentioned, and they're highest on the mountain uh, when, when the blizzard struck. Then we've got Scott Fisher, who's with his Sherpa Lopsang Jangbu, and they are also very high on the mountain, attempting to descend. We've then got Andy Harris, and he was one of the guides for the adventure consultants. At this point, he's alone, and he uh, is attempting to climb back up uh, to the stricken expedition leaders. So they're the, the kind of three groups that are very high on the mountain. We've then got a large group of climbers who were almost down when the mount, when when they got caught in the storm. And this is a group with a lot of people. So we've got this group, which includes guides, beadlemen, and groom. And then it has the climbers that we mentioned, Beckweathers, uh, Shoning, Fox, Madsen, Pittman, Namba, and Gamelgard. So we've got quite a few climbers with these two guides who are on their way down and uh, but have not yet made it back to Camp 4. And I just want to know at this point, Beck Weathers was suffering from snow blindness. So he had been climbing up and Hall had passed him and Hall had said to him, look, Beck, wait here, I'm going to go up and then I'll come back down and I'll take you down with me. And so he basically like sat and waited on a ledge for like eight hours waiting for Hall to come back down. But Hall obviously is stuck up the top with Hansen at this point. Uh, luckily, the large group I just mentioned with Beedleman and Groom came across him on the way down um, and, and kind of picked him up and, and took, took him down with them. And then we've got the group who made it down to Camp 4 and were in the tents. So we've got these kind of five groups uh, and we're going to take them one at a time in terms of what happened. So the first one that we're going to talk about is that large group of climbers. So the two guides, Beedleman and Groom, and then, uh, yeah, all the clients with them. And the clients are a mix of both expeditions. So we've got both adventure consultants and Mountain Madness people in this group. So the blizzard was getting pretty difficult at this point, and it was very hard for them to see more than a few feet in front of them. But they worked together and this large group managed to descend most of the mountain and they managed to get within about 200 feet of Camp 4 when they got totally lost, basically. Uh, So some of the guides were like literally dragging some of the clients along to try and get them back. But because the weather was just so bad, they literally like... The camp was basically in front of them, but they just could not see it. They couldn't see more than a few feet in front of them and they just got lost on this kind of like flat bit by by the camps. So they kind of just wandered around really in this bit of bit of snow just like hoping that they basically were eventually going to kind of stumble onto the camp. But unfortunately that wasn't the case and they weren't successful and they were getting quite worried because like I mentioned earlier with the Taiwanese climber that fell off they were near quite sheer cliffs and you know it it was only one step too far and they would be you know over the edge and and falling so they decided to stop uh, and they decided to sit and wait for a break in the storm. So the group all sat down, they all huddled together uh, near a rock, Uh, they tried to keep warm, they tried to keep awake, uh, and just tried to kind of sit it out and wait uh, for for some visibility. A few hours passed then, uh, and there was a very small lapse in the storm, uh, and Shoning, who was one of the climbers that was there, uh, was convinced he knew where the camp was, and he wanted to make a run for it. Uh, Basically, he kind of thought it was around 15 minutes away. At that point, only four of them were strong enough 
to move without support. So Shoning, Gamelgard, Beedleman and Groom set off uh, to try and make a, a, a break back to camp. And the hope there was that they'd be able to get back to camp and then rouse some support to then go and save the rest of the group that were, that were stuck out there. So that meant that Madsen, Fox, Pittman, Namba and Weathers were all left and they were still out in the storm uh, awaiting awaiting rescue. Thankfully, the, the group of four that did make a break for it were successful and they made it back to camp and collapsed into their tents exhausted. And they all had a lot of quite bad frostbite. But they did have a conversation with Anatoly, the guide who had come down uh, first from the summit, and told him what has happened and tried to give him directions to go out and try and find the others that were stuck out there. Anatoly found some oxygen and he quickly set out in the storm to try and find them, you know, and this was like so dangerous for him to go out and, yeah, and, and put his life at risk basically to see if he could find them. And he spent hours wandering around trying to get them. At one point he went back to the camp to get further directions and then went out again to see, see where they were. Thankfully, finally, he stumbled on the group and he managed to get Madsen and Fox, kind of encouraged them to, to get up and, and supported them to, to get moving. Um, and then he looked at the other three that were there, Pittman, Weathers and Namba. Pittman was uh, a little bit more in a better condition. So he supported her and helped carry her back to camp. But at the time, Weathers and Namba, you know, they weren't moving, they weren't responsive. So he, uh, yeah, they just had to make the decision to, to leave them there. So thankfully, soon that second group uh, managed to get back to the tents and, and more of that group were able to get back in. So out of that large group, then the only people that have been left out in the, in, out, not in camp, were Namba and Weathers. So that was the big group. Let's go now to the smaller groups that we talked about. So we've got Hall and Hansen right at the top, Harris by himself, and then Fisher with his ship Alopsang. The climbers at Camp 4 at this point knew that obviously these people hadn't returned. They knew that there was a problem, but there was just no one who was capable of doing a rescue. Everyone was so exhausted by their journey to come down or the, the rescue attempt that had just happened that just no one no one could go out and do anything. And like the storm was also so strong at that point that it was just dangerous. Like there was just no... It wasn't safe for anyone to go out at that point and attempt to do anything. So everyone else stayed in the camps. Up on the mountain, there was a lot of confusion. So Doug Hansen had collapsed and Rob Hall, who was with him, was basically unwilling to leave. And he really needed more oxygen brought up the mountain to then help support them down. Harris, who was the other guide, he was by the oxygen stash that they had left uh, kind of halfway up the mountain. But Harris was starting to get really confused from altitude sickness and he was convinced that there was no oxygen left in any of the bottles that were there at the stash and kept radioing to Hall basically saying, there's no oxygen here, there's no oxygen here, you just need to come down. But it was pretty clear afterwards that he had been confused and actually the, the oxygen bottles were full. But Harris did attempt to climb back up to Hall uh, in order to support him and, and try and bring them down. But unfortunately, at some point on his journey back, he did fall and unfortunately died. Um, and his body has never been found on the mountain. So at this point, Hall and Hansen 
are still in place at the top of the Hillary step and Hall is in radio contact with base camp at all times. We're not really sure what happened then at this point, but at some point Doug Hansen fell, we're assuming. At some point basically Hall just said he's gone on the radio and it was assumed he had fallen off the mountain from, from wherever they were. But unfortunately, at this point, Hall had expended all of his energy trying to get Hansen down, and he was suffering from extreme frostbite in his fingers and toes. And so even like with all the encouragement of everyone on the radio, uh, he he survived you know overnight. He survived two days up there, but he was just unable to climb down, and anyone was unable to get up to him because they were just so high on the mountain when this happened. Base camp actually patched his wife through to him, who was pregnant, which is really sad. Um, and, you know, she tried to kind of encourage him to, to carry on down. But, yeah, unfortunately, he didn't make it. And soon the radio contact stopped and it was assumed that he had died as well. As for the final group, Fisher, he was really struggling with physical ail- physical ailments and exhaustion. Uh, it's assumed now that potentially he was suffering from, from other health problems at the time, which were really impacting his uh, ability to climb. And his Sherpa, Lopsang Jangbu, really helped him descend, so literally like carried him halfway down the mountain. But he basically got to a point where he just couldn't carry him anymore. And they, uh, he had to make the decision to leave him. So he left him there with oxygen. He was still alive. So he was hoping that he could climb down and then, and then potentially get someone else to go up. And he had also come across a Taiwanese climber who was also uh, lost in the storm. And so they, so Lopsang left Fisher and the Taiwanese climber to get that on the ledge uh, and then continued down. So come the next morning, the majority of the blizzard had passed at this point, but it was still not great conditions. So two Sherpas headed off as soon as they could to climb back up to Fisher to see if they were able to then bring him down, but determined that he he was just too too far gone at that point and, and he was soon to die, so they decided not to not to bring him down. But they did they did bring the Taiwanese climber down and he thankfully survived. So that meant that Fisher died at the balcony where he sat. Also, this next morning, they made another rescue attempt back to Weathers and Namba, where they where they had been left the night before. Uh, but then again, they were find, found uh, as not responsive. So they were again left. Crazily, which I just can't really believe this happened. Later in the day, Beck Weathers, who had literally been out there and was just like absolutely comatose, actually regained consciousness and then managed to walk back to camp. But he was, like, suffering from severe hypothermia. He had frostbite. He was just, like, you know, like, horrifically injured and everything. And he had been left twice by people to just, like, die out on the coal. But he managed to get up and make it back to camp. Then, because then, like, the weather got even worse, when they then then went to go... When they decided to go descend from camp four, they looked in his tent and, you know, they'd like given him stuff, but they looked in his tent and they thought he had died again. So they were going to leave him again. And so he then had to like, like yell in order to get them to realize that, no, he was alive and he needed help down. So basically he like, yeah, survived very (laughs) amazingly in terms of what happened to him. But many of the climbers who had survived were in a really bad way. So thankfully, when they got Weathers down, uh, they managed to get him down to Camp 2 and then a helicopter evacuated him. 
uh, and then many of the others made it to base camp and then were evacuated from there as well. So in summary, in the summit attempt, it had resulted in five deaths. So we've got uh, both of the expedition leaders, unfortunately, perished, Rob Hall and Scott Fisher. The guide who went back up to support them, Andy Harris, died. And then the two clients, Doug Hansen, who uh, had problems right high up on the mountain, and Yusuko Namba, who uh, was the Japanese lady who perished just, just by the camps. And overall, it was the deadliest season on Everest to date. So another three people died uh, around about that time from another expedition. And then uh, more people died on the other side of the mountain as well. So it ended up with 12 people dying in total on that season. And yeah, it was the deadliest season to date at that point. Uh, But since then, uh, there have been another bad seasons in the 2000s, mainly because of avalanches. So yeah, really, really tragic um, and really just like so many factors at play as to what happened and what went wrong and how how it all came together. So I spent a bit of time now kind of digesting all of that and understanding why it happened and, and, and why what went wrong. Looking at the reasons for the disaster, I think it's. I, I think I find this so fascinating, and and from feedback, it sounds like you do as well, because a lot of it comes down to the decision making by the people that have been involved and the the kind of drive that they have in order to get to the summit and to get, you know, up there and and do do what they want. And I think the the quote I left you with on the last episode around basically this had been something that they've been working towards for years at this point potentially some of them had tried it before and failed and so they wanted to go again they knew that this was their only chance to summit because they only had oxygen left to summit once and and I think it just really like gave them what we talked about in K2, like summit fever. They were just desperate to get to the top because this was just everything that they had um, wanted and everything that they had been working towards. And I think because of that, it led to bad decision-making. When you combine that summit fever with the altitude sickness that we talked about in the beginning, kind of causing confusion, causing bad decision-making, it's not hard to believe that at the time, these decisions made kind of perfect sense to them in terms of choosing to continue up and not turn around and go down. And I, I do think that that was issues around the turnaround time and the fact that they didn't go down. But I think a lot of it is just is just about the kind of people that can, you know, I, I can never climb to the top of Everest. I can tell you that right now. Like, I'm just, I'm just not that person that could do it. But all these people are. And again, there's another quote in Krakow's book which I really thought thought kind of summarized this up really well he says by this late stage in the expedition we had all been subjected to levels of misery and peril that would have sent a more that would have sent more balanced individuals packing for home long ago unfortunately the sort of individual who is programmed to ignore personal distress and keep pushing for the top is frequently programmed to disregard signs of grace and imminent danger as well This forms the nub of a dilemma that every climber has. In order to succeed, you must be exceedingly driven. But if you're too driven, then you are going to die. 
And I just, I love that quote because I think it really sums up what what happened and what happens with decision-making when you're doing something like that because they're just so driven people to get to that summit and when you are you know that close and this is something you've been working towards you know you can't do it again you spent loads of money you know why why not like this is why they couldn't turn around and why these silly decisions were made I think I think reading that and thinking about it I can I can really understand why it happened but saying that I also think it was a series of bad Event, events that kind of all came together in order to result in in that in those decisions being the wrong decisions because I think if if it had been any other combination of things it may not have happened that way you know same with everything it's always kind of like lots of little things adding up together to to, to cause it so in terms of the other things then there was obviously the unpredictable weather and the fact that the blizzard hit if the blizzard hadn't hit you know we wouldn't be talking about this now and they would have been fine it is very hard to predict weather that high because because the weather is just so crazy at that at that altitude it's very hard to to know what is going to hit and when and, and that is still the case today even with all of our you know excellent weather tracking and that kind of thing so it potentially was avoidable. Like like we said, they did pass the IMAX team. The IMAX team decided that it wasn't stable enough and they went down. So potentially there was more information there that they were ignoring. But they had set this date. They wanted to hit the date. They potentially couldn't have got another date in order to, to do it. It it just meant that they, they wanted to take the risk with the weather. There was the illness within the group then. Uh, like I mentioned earlier, I think Fisher very much was not well um if you read about his kind of whole time there he wasn't he was stressed he he was clearly suffering from from something else as well uh, which meant that he just wasn't in a great space he had had to climb down like we mentioned in the last episode he had had to take that climber down from camp two down to base camp and so he'd just been kind of forced to do a lot more additional climbing that I think he then wasn't recovering from and I cannot remember the stat but I'm sure in one of the books it basically said you know he had basically climbed the equivalent of like up and down like eight times in the amount of trips he'd had to take to kind of like move climbers around Uh, so I think it was just like sheer exhaustion on top of everything else that meant he just wasn't well and and because he wasn't well he wasn't making the decisions that he should have made and he wasn't doing that role that we talked about around to you know climbing last and then turning people around as he hit as he caught up to them because he just wasn't able to catch up to them because he was just climbing so slowly so another factor then was oxygen this again like i talked about in the last episode it's one of those things that people really debate about around how much oxygen you know whether you should climb with oxygen whether you shouldn't climb with oxygen i think it makes sense to climb with oxygen but basically the people that don't support it are saying you know if you don't climb with oxygen obviously you don't have a lot of energy and you suffer a lot more but you you know your baseline you know how hard to push and you know what you can achieve whereas oxygen can potentially give you a bit of like a false sense of security in terms of being able to push and then if that oxygen runs out uh, you're suddenly in like a very dangerous position because you're just not used to to not having that oxygen there and i think there were a few few problems with the oxygen you know they they hadn't got enough 
they they didn't have enough oxygen really to kind of cover all of them they had problems really understanding how long the oxygen would last and how much people should be carrying and then there was the confusion with the stash that was up there as well in terms of was there any oxygen left in it or not so I think oxygen does cause more problems by by using it, but I think it is essential for some people to climb with oxygen. Uh, and but pretty much every client does climb with oxygen, and it, and it makes sense. But I do think it contributed to this incident. And then we had the delays with the fixed rope, so the fact that ropes weren't in there, and that causing the bottlenecks and the kind of gridlock with the climbers. And I think this really did impact impact it and was a real driving factor because I think. It slowed everyone down, made people cold, it wasted energy, it just meant people weren't in a great shape. And it also, I think, kind of like drove people on a bit, going back to the to the driven part. I think if you're sitting there like waiting, waiting and waiting and waiting, you know, when you're in a queue and you're like, oh, well, I'm in the queue now, like I've just got to wait. I think it was that kind of mentality in terms of like just waiting and waiting for it to happen. So I, I definitely think that contributed to it. And if if they had you know, had the right information and, and knew that the ropes weren't fixed or knew knew something was up with that, then I think that that could have been avoided. Then we had problems with radios as well. I didn't talk too much about radios in the episodes just because there's already quite long and there's a lot of information. But there definitely wasn't enough radios. Um, Not all guides had radios, which I think was a real issue because it meant that there just wasn't enough communication like across the group. Uh, and it meant that people couldn't really know what was going on with other people and where they were. So I think now, you know, they do say that everyone should be climbing with uh, radios and should be kind of prepared for that. But I do really think when it comes down to it, a lot of it was around the pressure to summit. I do, I think it comes back to it. I think it comes back to these people were really driven. It was their one attempt. I think that Fisher had a lot of pressure because it was his first year doing it. He wanted it to be a success. I think Hall had pressure because they hadn't summited the year before. And so they really wanted to summit this year. And then I think they both had pressure because they both had journalists on there covering it. And they just knew if they both had managed to get journalists up to the summit, like how much good press and how much coverage they would get and how much it would benefit their business to kind of get them up there. And I think that really is is what it it comes down to in terms of in terms of what happened which then again brings up that kind of decision not decision brings up that kind of issue around does you know are, are these commercial trips the best thing because because by doing commercial guiding it does bring in additional factors and additional pressures that maybe you know professional mountaineers may not have as much of so yeah very tragic tale in terms of what we learned, it's another hard one. It's the same as K2. I think that we, you know, things have been learned around fixed ropes and radios and, and all of that kind of thing. But I think when it comes down to it, every all mountaineers know around summit fever, around decision making, but it just comes down to the person and it just comes down to what decisions they make and when, which you know, it can be hard. It can be hard to learn those things and decide what to do. Super tragic, but a very 
interesting story i think about everest and about commercialization and about yeah different different decisions people make i mentioned this briefly in the last episode but this there've been a lot of incidents on everest this got so much coverage in the press and i think that was because of John Krakauer and the fact that he was on it. So he published an article in uh, Outside Magazine, which uh, I did find online and, and is worth a read. Uh, and that was a really popular article. So he turned it into the book, which is Into Thin Air. He criticised Anatoly, the Mountain Madness Guide, a lot in that book for descending early and for not supporting clients. And what that then led to was Anatoly writing a book with uh, an additional author with um, with the help of, of, of a writer where he kind of told his side of the story in terms of what he thought happened and how he thought the decisions were made. And it, and it led to this kind of feud between the two of them, I guess, which really prompted a lot of media speculation and a lot of media coverage. Uh, unfortunately, Anatoly then died quite soon after this when he was hit by an avalanche on another mountain. Uh, so it, it, it kind of ended there. But I think that is why this has been so covered in the, you know, in, in the in the psyche and, and has just been so famous. Others have also written books, uh, which I haven't read. I only read those two. But I think Beck Weathers also wrote one, which I'd be interested to read. Um, and then there were definitely another couple as well. But I think... Reading Into the Net and then reading The Climb, it, it's good to read both because I do think that when I, after I read Into the Air, I was like, oh yeah, like this is exactly what happened and this is why and da, 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 da. And then I read The Climb and I was like, oh, actually, now that I've heard it from a different perspective, I've kind of changed my my feelings on things. And, you know, I think it's always important to to get many sides of a story, basically. So do have a read of both of those if this is something you're interested in and I, to be honest i just think they're really good books in general i yeah really really well written and really addictive reading if you don't want to read uh there's loads of documentaries the film everest was made which is based on this tale with jake gillenhall as scott fisher uh, and and kira knightley as rob hall's wife doing a terrible new zealand accent so that's worth watch it's on Netflix at the moment I think I did watch it I rewatched it and yeah it's a good it's definitely a good film uh, and it does cover everything pretty well in terms of what happened and it's just good to like see pictures of Everest and kind of bring it to life a bit more there's also a load of documentaries out there uh, on YouTube and that kind of thing which are also worth a watch if you want to read more about it so yeah I will put uh, all of those references in the show notes anyway if you want to uh, yeah have a look at them or have further read i think i've covered everything i feel like i've been talking about this for about three days i feel like i've been learning about this for like three weeks because i first read into thin air years ago and then i watched everest years ago as well and and i and i really enjoyed it then it kind of prompted me to start thinking about this podcast actually and it's been good to reread them and then to read further into it so yeah i feel like i've had a lot to say i feel like i could talk about it all day but i will i will stop there uh, so yeah, thank you very much for listening. Please do like, subscribe, all that kind of thing. Follow and do come and find me on Instagram. I'm at when it goes wrong pod. Uh, and I'd love to see you there. I'd love your feedback and I'd love any suggestions for future episodes. 